Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. On this episode of the Fieldhouse Files, I'll discuss where the Pacers stand after 10 games, that difficult schedule of theirs, health concerns, some players back, others not, and my thoughts on home games. And I'll look at other key areas, including that Wilson basketball. And welcome into the Fieldhouse Files, the podcast where I take you behind the scenes with the Pacers, talk to individuals on and around the team, and tell you what you need to know. Pacers are 10 games in now, 3-7, and seven, probably should be more like 5-5, five and five, perhaps 6-4, and four, but I'm recording this episode on Saturday after the Pacers lost late Friday night to the Blazers, a game in which Damian Lillard Scores just four points. He missed 11 of 13 shots. It was really surprising and baffling to see, but he's have a troubling start to the season. And yet the Pacers still lose that one in Portland, where other than uh, this past season, uh, this COVID year with no fans, Pacers haven't won there all the way back to 2007. So it's been a rough go for the Pacers there, and it's one they probably, again, should have had. We're, we're unable to close. Um, But much of that also goes back to their start because, yes, it doesn't all come down to just the final minutes. They set themselves up poorly by scoring less than 20 points in the first quarter, getting outscored, falling behind big, and having to play catch-up in addition to doing it in Portland at the Moda Center, one of the great atmospheres in the NBA. And then also, you know, having some of those second-half woes that were all too familiar with here early into the season. Now, I am recording this one from the road, so I don't have my typical great-sounding home studio, but I have plenty to talk about on this solo episode, and I think you will enjoy, so please stay with me. Now, before we get into it, want to make sure you've joined the community at fieldhousefiles.com. That's where all my written work, it's where most of my info goes first. And make sure you're subscribed so you get every story direct to your inbox when it's published. You don't have to hang around Twitter just to get the stories or any other social media platform. It comes to you and before anyone else. It's daily coverage for $5 a month or $50 per year. But how about this? Listeners only of the Fieldhouse Files podcast get 25% off for the next 12 months, but you have to go to a specific link. Go to fieldhousefiles.substack.com slash podcast. Sign up there using that link, and you'll get all signed up for 25% off the full price. Well, right now, because of the Pacers' brutal schedule, I'm not all too surprised about where they are at, although they absolutely should have at least a couple, maybe three more wins to their name. But right now, they're on a very difficult stretch that was seen coming months ago when the schedule was first put out. Rick Carlisle cautioned about it, was upset about it even at media day, and has reinforced that message over the last week or so. And right now, they're in the heat of it. Four in a row on the road, seven of eight, eight of ten. And even more telling to me is they play in a different city for 11 straight games. Well, yeah, that's not all road games, but every other game is a new venue in a different city. So you're traveling before every single game. 
the stops at home, those are actually more difficult because you try to make up for lost time with family. Maybe you take care of some things around the house. Maybe you have some laundry to do or those sorts of items. And I get it. Yes, not all of them are probably doing their laundry and those sort of things. But that's rough. On top of that, you're trying to rest, recover, and get prepared for your next opponent while also hoping to maybe mix in some on-court time. Uh, Right now, you're really not practicing too much. Definitely still shooting around. They're not yet in the portion of the schedule where they don't hold shoot-arounds or anything like that. That generally comes after the new year in January, maybe February before the All-Star break because by then, you kind of have the rhythm of the season down. You're comfortable with your new teammates and their tendencies. And right now, again, the Pacers have repeated it a lot, but I will again hear that they're going on their third head coach in three seasons. That's not easy, especially foreign players, where there's a language barrier to some extent with Goga Pataze, with rookie Chris Duarte and such. So yes, they're absolutely are going to be growing pains and a rough road heavy stretch to start the season is something actually Rick Carlisle is familiar with because he went through the exact same thing in Dallas with the Mavericks last season. Get this, I looked it up. First three games were on the road, six of their first eight, and ultimately 13 of their first 19 games. And guess what? They started 8 of 11. They had a stretch of six straight losses. And finally, after a 9 and 14 start, water began to find its level a little bit. And they found their footing and finished much better off. But it was a struggle there for the first month of the season. Very much what they and myself are expecting from this Pacers team to get things rolling here uh, now just a couple of weeks in. Talk about home games. Half their games have been at home, and I'll be honest here. It's been disappointing for a number of reasons. You can start with the crowd. Yeah, it's been small, less than 50%. I think the highest announced attendance has maybe been 11,000. They have not given us the official number of the new attendance after two years of renovations. Generally, that's about 18,000. So, you know, if they're really down to about eight, nine. I can't imagine there are more than 10, despite the announced attendance. That's where they're at right now. There's a lot of competition. I mean, there's a Saturday night game in the balcony. Take your pick of where you want to sit. That's what it's been. Secondly, I think the setup and the new arrangements inside Gamebridge Fieldhouse is partly to blame. I think the lower level right now is more about business and premium seating and entertainment and bars and selling beer than it is helping the team and the spacing of it is different the gray seats are boring the crowd hasn't just been into it and in fairness the other way uh, the team hasn't given the crowd a lot to get into a ton just yet here's the other thing and I'm not sure a lot of people know this this frustrates me because I know their impact in this thing has been going along for over a decade. It started out as Area 55, but the one fan section, they're down to one. They used to have two with Warren's Warriors. Turner's Block has been moved from that club-level section behind the Pacers bench, along with Drumline, up to the balcony by themselves. They might as well be up in the clouds up there with the Lucas Oil press box. That's how far they are, and I feel bad for them. They are getting free tickets, are able to help out and contribute to the noise in the building. But it's not the same. They're not on top of the court, or at least have that feeling. So thus far, home games haven't been great, have not been ideal, and that's something they have to work on. And yes, some obvious things, of course. you got high school football wrapping up. You're in the middle of a cult season. Um, and obviously, NFL across the country is king. Um, but home games haven't quite had that fun 
uh, electric feel to them that I always enjoy at Gamebridge Fieldhouse. Now, the Pacers did get off to a 1-6 start. That was their worst start since the 2014-15 season, and that's a memorable one. I'm sure you remember. I remember exactly where I was before the season on August 1, 2014. I was visiting one of my sisters in Washington, D.C., had this small TV turned into the USA basketball scrimmage, and Paul George, of course, suffered that challenging injury, the compound leg fracture, and that Pacer season was over basically before it even began. He was only eligible for the final six games, and because they lost the final game, they did not make the playoffs. And the year before that, of, of course, was the last time the Pacers have advanced in the playoffs. The last time uh, they did that was back-to-back years in the conference finals. So there's been a dry spell and something that Rick and his coaching staff are looking to correct. Now, I will say it does feel like a different vibe to the team right now. It feels like a fresh start, a new beginning um, that they've been now that they've been able to get their health back for the most part. Karis LeVert making his debut this past week. Malcolm Brogdon returning from a hamstring strain, and I'll get into that a little bit more. Um, And because of all that, they played well, looked sharp, better than they have, and captured wins at home. Back-to-back, in fact, for the first time, able to string together wins over the Spurs and Knicks. And before that, it had been four straight losses on the road. And I will touch on, on Brogdon because he did clarify to me what his injury was. Sometimes... I feel like teams try to keep it simple, and I understand that. Um, But Brogdon is a guy that will speak his mind and share exactly not only what he's going through, but maybe the team as well. And he said, no, it's not a hamstring strain that he's dealing with. It's in that area, though. He explained to me that it's actually more inflammation surrounding the hamstring, the fascia. And there I go, having to uh, work on my injury beat writing skills rather than Pacers beat writing skills for, I don't know, the fourth straight season, it feels like. But this is another specific injury I've learned covering the team. But it's just tissue that surrounds the hamstring, and that's why he was able to return after just missing a week. Whereas, you know, Keelan Martin, for example, uh, after dealing with a hamstring strain in camp, he missed all of camp and all of the preseason and the start to the season and finally returned after over three weeks, I believe. With Karis LeVert returning, uh, they have specifically ramped up his minutes. And if you haven't caught my story from his debut on FieldhouseFiles.com, you'll want to. Because I touched on something nobody else is. And that's how different the Pacers and, and Karis and this coaching staff are treating him in his return from the injury. Remember he had that stress fracture to his back uh, that cost him the preseason and training camp and all of that, just like Keelan Martin It was something that was discovered in a scan just before training camp, kind of your annual physical. And and good thing, because if you keep playing on that, he said he had been in pain for a couple of months. Well, if you keep doing that and you take the pounding of an NBA season and the travel and the significant minutes, that's going to lead to something more severe. But the difference, and I again, I hit further on this, was... Levert, I don't know if you missed it, but he revealed over the offseason that he was frustrated and annoyed how he was brought back, rushed by Nate Bjorkren, he felt like. How he practiced maybe one time, scrimmaged for maybe five minutes, and then while the team was in Phoenix, Nate comes to him and says, hey, great, uh, we'll see you tomorrow, you're starting. He's like, wait, what, I didn't even give you the thumbs up that I'm good to play tomorrow. Um, And then he went out and played, I think, 27 minutes. Looked really good, but also 
very much out of shape and uncomfortable from that standpoint. And that's expected when he had his kidney removed, his left kidney in that cancerous mass removed less than seven weeks before, hadn't really been in great conditioning and you're thrown back out there. Well, this time it was different. And so through these first, what, four games, he's started out at 16 minutes, then 24, 31, ramped up to 34. And I feel like there's probably another week or so of that for him at least to get into game shape before he can get back to, you know, no true minutes restriction and and very much going off of how he feels and how the trainers say he looks. But that's learning from experience. That's uh, also a much more experienced coaching staff taking over and understanding of its players and their needs and and how a player goes not from 0 to 100, but from 0 to 40, and then from 40 to 60, and 60 to 70, and 70 to 90, and that's probably about where Curious is at this point, and he needs a couple months, maybe another month to kind of break in and be that 100% Karis LeVert that the Pacers expect and need for him to be. Now, before I get into some early stats to check on the rookies, further health update, of course, a front office move I want to touch on, I want to tell you about only indie tickets. If you want to go to a Pacers game, your first stop should be at only indie tickets. They have tickets for the hard-to-get games when the box office is sold out, or check out only indie tickets for some great deals for many of the weeknight games as well. Then, Come back for Colts, for Butler, for Fever tickets, and for everything else going on in Indy. It's local. Just punch in onlyindytickets.com and enjoy the game. I'm in a hotel room staring at statistics, and there's many that jump out to me, but I lean more towards the defensive side of the ball. That is what has stood out to me about the Pacers and some of their challenges during those first 10 games of the season, right? You're looking at the Pacers being 26th in defensive rating. They should be top 12. How about 26th in points allowed? That's not good enough. They're yielding 111.4 points per game, and that may seem good because it's down four points per game on average from last season, but scoring is down across the league, so that's actually not the case. The Pacers are also 28th in opponents' second-chance points. They haven't been as dominant as they have been in transition this past season. Assists have been better from the start of the season. Turnovers are down slightly. They've improved in that area some. But still, the defense, that's the focus. Every single practice and shoot-around for Rick Carlisle and his staff. From there, that's where the offense can take off. From not grabbing the ball out of the net. From scoring more in transition. From making the opponent work more on that end of the floor. So if you want to look how quickly and how soon can the Pacers shore up things, Look no further than that end of the floor and how successful they can be there should lead to more on the offensive end. And oftentimes, too, you'll see when guys individually are are getting stops and they're seeing their teammates get stops and have success there, they're a little bit more loose in a good way with the ball, more free-flowing, having more fun, more open to passing. I think everything benefits from a strong defense and stringing together stops. Individually, one player I want to single out is Chris Duarte. You've probably seen what he's done and continues to do. A double-digit score. He's averaging 16 points per game, playing significant role in significant minutes on the team already. He started in every single game. You know all the buzzwords, and they're all true. He's confident. He's fearless. He's in control. Um, he's very comfortable taking late-game shots and buzzer beaters. That extends all the way back from Summer League when we saw him, I think, hit four 
playing in only like three games out in Las Vegas, and he's carried that into the regular season, and that was even after a couple in the preseason. He had won a couple games ago, and that led to a a very interesting response when asked about those late-game situations or those pressures, moments, building while the buzzer ticks down. He says, actually, I don't feel the pressure. What am I supposed to do? Of course I have to put the shot up. I can't get yelled at by the coach for throwing the ball up there or attempting a, a late in quarter or buzzer shot. That's what I'm supposed to do, and I expect to make it. You gotta love the kid, his confidence, and what he's been able to do thus far. We are not used to seeing a rookie be so impactful with the Pacers, mostly because they're drafting much later, but also it's so far been a great draft pick and the right one for this team with Chris Duarte and a guy, as I've discussed previously and written about, many other teams, including the Warriors and Knicks, were highly after. Now his rookie counterpart, Isaiah Jackson, he's in street clothes, sidelined, of course, with a hyperextended left knee. He's week to week, but that's much better than originally anticipated after he had an unlucky fall and kind of got bopped in his left knee by Domanis Sabonis while they are going for a rebound. A couple other health injury updates. Uh, Malcolm Brogdon did not play in Portland. He is sick. Not with COVID, though. He just didn't sleep well Thursday night in Portland. He woke up feeling rough, did not go through shoot-around, and a lot of times it's typical for them to stay behind in the team hotel, um, for one, so they can get more rest. A shoot-around is not going to do as much as sleep and, and rest, but also you don't want him to potentially infect others um, with a cold or sickness, whatever he's dealing with, whether that's coaches, um, teammates, and such. So he stayed behind there. He remained at the hotel during the game and then was with the team on the charter flight to Sacramento. But he's questionable. We'll see if he's able to return. Probably not, but it all depends on how he wakes up um, and is feeling in the morning. Then they have two more games left on this road trip. It's a challenging, again, road-heavy trip. So you much rather not force him back here and lose him for a couple more games later on if, if symptoms and things like that persist uh, with, again, a non-COVID illness. The Pacers are expecting, however, Jeremy Lamb to return here in next game, maybe two, but certainly on this road trip. He's been with them. He is participating in shoot-arounds and these walkthroughs and practice. He's doing his usual ice downs afterward You know, with ice on his knees, on his left ankle, on his right wrist, trying to uh, get healthy enough. And he needs to be back out there, both for himself and for this team. The team's better off with him out there. I don't know why he has a lot of Pacer fans that are upset, maybe because of his health or maybe because he's unable to contribute at the level in which some expected. But his defense has been probably the one thing that is fair criticism. Hadn't been great. It has not been sharp. No, that is a big area of weakness. And a lot of that depends on where he's played and who he's matched up against. If he's switched on to a four, let's say, good luck. That's rough going, tough sledding for him. But another key score off the bench, and that would help the Pacers because they need as much scoring as they can get right now, especially right there with that bench unit led by TJ McConnell when Malcolm Brogdon is back in that starting lineup. There was kind of one semi-major, I will say, update this past week. You probably read about it on Fieldhouse Files, and that was to TJ Warren. He is finally out of the boot. And at the Pacers' last home game against the New York Knicks, he had two sneakers on. And that's notable because he has been in that boot 
for what going all the way back to the start of training camp. So that was the end of September. So that's positive news. He's been getting a regular scan on his left foot, that navicular fracture he had surgery on back on January 5th, just has not healed at the rate the Pacers and he had hoped. Uh, he did try to get and ramp up in early August. They don't believe that caused anything. It was just a matter of the foot needing more time to heal. So they did indeed give it more time. So he hasn't been able to do much of anything on the court here in the last couple of months. He has tried to stay in shape and get some conditioning in, riding a stationary bike daily. But yeah, on November 2nd, he had his regular scan of his left foot. It showed improvement and uh, continues to ramp up. But don't expect him back this month is where I'm at right now. There's no official timeline, but I, I think it's going to be some weeks here. It's not just going to be, you know, maybe when the team finishes up this long road trip or anything with that. The he is on the road. He is with the team and shooting around and doing more, but not close to returning at this juncture. To me, the biggest surprise with the rotation and with head coach Rick Carlisle thus far has been his affinity for Keelan Martin over O'Shea Brissett in the rotation since Keelan returned from that preseason injury to his hamstring. He's getting those rotation minutes. Sometimes he's the second or third guy off the bench, and O'Shea Brissett's minutes have been eliminated or minimized over the last couple of games. I thought he's done uh, a lot for this team, obviously last year in need, and then more so this season. He's a versatile player. Uh, I think Keelan maybe gives you more security with that three-point shot, um, but that's something I'm tracking here. I was curious to see Keelan jump O'Shea Brissett in the rotation because how I understood it is – Keelan is very much on the border uh, of being waived, right? Remember, I've reported how the Pacers have pushed push back his contract guarantee date a couple of times, and now it's pushed back to the league-wide date, which is in early January, maybe January 5th, I want to say, January 9th at the top of my head. Um, he did get some guarantee. It's a partially guaranteed deal, whereas he had a non-guaranteed deal, and if they did not push back that guarantee date, um, he would either have to be waived or his contract becomes guaranteed all of it for this season. But um, yeah, you, you can see Rick has preferred him thus far. Uh, right now, I, I thought another interesting note was what Rick said after the Pacers' loss in Portland. We know this isn't a contending roster, but what he said after Friday's loss was, quote, I really like our team. I think we have a lot of talent, but we don't have the kind of talent to win on talent alone. And one, I was like, well, duh, obvious. Yeah, of course. This team has never been this this way. The franchise uh, in NBA days has never been this way. Or else Reggie, for example, could have led the Pacers to an NBA title. No, it's going to be by the collective. That's true, and it's always how it's been. But it was another way this week how Rick has publicly noted how it is about the collective, how sacrificing for the good of the team and individuals not worrying about stats or not worrying about offensive production. He mentioned it earlier in the week about Miles Turner um, a couple of times after he had a, a big game, and he didn't want to talk about the offense. He goes, hey, look, he, he needs to produce in other ways. The offense is a bonus. We like that. We expect that. And here's another one where I think he's just kind of forewarning or, or signaling out to his team, hey, look, less focus about individual statistics, more about production on the court as a group, which should lead to wins. Another story I want to hit on is how the Pacers front office did indeed elect to exercise the fourth-year 
team option on Goga Pataze's contract, as I broke a week ago. It was expected, but not a given. And I'll have more with Goga on this and his outlook in his story soon on Fieldhouse Files. But the key word for him, especially over the last few months, the last year, has been maturity. And now he needs reps. He's got the financial security in the short term. He, he knows he's not playing for next year's contract this year. So all he needs to worry about is producing, staying healthy, and making the most of his minutes. And speaking of minutes, since that move by the front office, it has been notable that Goga is getting consistent minutes. He's in the rotation and playing some in each game. Just about 10 minutes, but that's a good start. That's a progress from what he's had in the past where he'd go from not playing four games to you know, being the backup and playing 20 minutes and then a guy, a teammate getting in foul trouble and playing a lot. Now he's getting at least 10 minutes a game. So he needs more, but that's a good start. One week ago, the Pacers hosted the Spurs and Doug McDermott did make the trip. He has a minor injury. We did get to see Thad Young, but whenever the Spurs come to town for their annual visit, that means head coach Greg Popovich, a mainstay, longest tenured head coach in the NBA. And for so long, Past 13 seasons, Rick Carlisle and Greg Popovich coaching against each other down in Texas for quite a while. Well, before the two teams squared off, Rick was asked about Pop and gave an incredible answer, of which I want to share with you guys right here. Take a listen. In my opinion, he's the greatest coach in the history of our of our league for a number of reasons. Um, you know, I mean, the Coach of the Year trophy is named after Red Arback. <laughs> And, you know, he's the godfather of great coaching. Um, and the guy that drafted me in the third round way back when. So, you know, it's, it's no disrespect to him or Phil Jackson um, or Pat Riley. You know, or, or, you know, those guys are the kind of the Mount Rushmore of, of great coaches. Um, you know, Pop has done it during a period of time when the game has constantly changed. Um, He's constantly adapted. He's been both on the adaptive and the inventive side of the game. Um, at a time when the league was really struggling to score, um, you know, he studied European basketball and, and went to a movement style of game that no one had ever seen before. And, and you see major elements of that today. He, he, was, he was decades ahead, you know, of his time there. Um, and he had great friends, you know. Uh, Henry Messina, you know, was, was a guy that had great influence on him. Um, and there are other many uh, great international coaches that I know that uh, that he uh, that he befriended, learned from, and shared with. So he, he's the he's the quintessential, you know, uh, great coach. And you know, he's always. Just had an amazing way about him, and he's, he's helped countless coaches. Um, you know, in this league, I, I'm one of them. You know, when I when I took uh, a year away from coaching after uh, our finals appearance in 2000, when Isaiah Thomas got the job, and I didn't, um, you know, Pop called and asked if I wanted to, you know, if I would come down and spend a few days in training camp and just give give him my insights. You know, I mean. And he didn't need me to come down there, you know, but he, he was doing it, you know, because, um, you know, he's a giver. And, and, you know, 
he, he understood at that time that was something that would lift me up, and it did, you know. And so, um, yeah, I, the coaches in this league that, that have known him for all these years um, really, really, really look up to him in a very, very special way. Good stuff there from Rick Carlisle. And I thought I was telling the fact that he was willing to speak so highly of his opponent, his appear, and uh, saying that despite all the great head coaches there, in his mind, Greg Popovich is the best. One other note before I get to my final message, and that's the Mad Ants began their season Saturday night, got the win up in Fort Wayne. Remember, they'll play nine home games at GameBridge Fieldhouse or afternoon starts, but that has been great or will be great for that team. I think fans as well, both two-way players, Dwayne Washington Jr. and Dejan Giroux are with them, not with the Pacers out West. Now, one final thing on my mind. There's been a lot of talk in recent days in the last week or so about the NBA basketball. It's now a Wilson basketball again. It originally was, then it was Spalding for the last 50 years, and now it's Wilson again. And we all remember that fiasco about a decade ago when the NBA tried to redesign the ball with the same company, the same manufacturer. Well, that was a disaster. And midway through the season, they threw all those balls away and brought back the old ones that the guys were used to. It was comfortable. It was predictable. It was familiar. Well, this ball uh, is slightly different, but not really, because despite a new manufacturer, it's all mostly the same. There was some getting used to, but the players I've spoken to, they're not bothered by it. Uh, most got the new ball uh, in the summer to prepare for and feel out and practice with. And so by now, mostly they're doing just fine. It doesn't explain the low shooting percentages. There's other reasons for that. There's other reasons for low scoring, like, for example, lack of free throws, lack of free throw attempts the other night in Portland. I was stunned after the game, although you did feel it during the game. Pacers shot just 10 free throws, made six of them. The Trailblazers shot a 15 free throw attempts and made 13 of them. Still, that's not very much. 25 combined is kind of what we were used to for one team. That, in many ways, is why scoring is down. And this is all relevant, too, because Damian Lillard's in a rut. His teammate, CJ McCollum, is the president of the Players Association, uh, Malcolm Brogdon, by the way, is part of that executive committee, one of nine on that group. But they were asked about it. A couple Pacers were once again asked about it. I cover that in training camp and was going to write a story, but my findings were, hey, not much of a story. Players got balls in the offseason. They've had them all during training camp and the weeks leading up. They're mostly used to it. However, there was one distinction, and, and I know this probably better than most outside the players because I was a ball boy with the team for seven years, up to 10 if you include my experience with the fever. So I was constantly rebounding, especially for Tamika Catchings. That was a different ball, but you get the point here. I can feel and notice a difference here. Well, I felt this Wilson ball and not much difference. Looks the same, feels the same, has the same paneling. The one difference that I can share is that it doesn't feel like they get worn in the same. Country, the team's equipment manager, always brings them in during practices and actually on the visitor's end before games when they're shooting around and things like that. Worn-in balls are much better. They have more grip. They're smoother, have a better feel. I think this is just early into the process. The balls haven't worn in 
like the previous ones did, and in turn, that's where the difference is. Because it's not from factory to arrival and things like that. It's that they have not been worn in quite like the Pacers and the rest of the players are used to. Thanks for bearing with me on this episode, this solo episode of the Fieldhouse Files podcast. A lot more exciting things in store on the road, up to a little something, and look forward to continuing to cover this Pacers team as they are on the road, continuing on in Sacramento, in Denver, in Utah, Dan Burke, and Peter Denwitty, former Pacer coach and front office member, back at Gainbridge Fieldhouse coming up on Saturday. And you talk about defense, (laughs) boy, do the Pacers still miss Dan Burke. Read my daily coverage of the Pacers online at fieldhousefiles.com. And I'll talk to you again soon.